This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. I was thinking today, why have the phone's been so quiet this week? And I figured it out. It's spring break. People have other things going on. So unless you call, you're just going to have to listen to me talk. You can dial 210-340-9585. It's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's numerically 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday and just a few hours, actually three hours from now, I'm going to be teaching the second half of Genesis chapter 37. I've been last week and this week laying a foundation for Joseph's life, one of the most interesting characters. 25% of Genesis deals with Joseph's life. That's how important it is. So tonight, the second part of our foundation um, in Joseph's life is a picture of Christ. Um, it, it, it's good stuff. It's just really, really good stuff. You can watch that live stream at calvarysa.com. Okay, let's get to questions that have been sent in while we await any phone calls that might be coming. Uh, The first one is from our mobile app. This one is from Alan. He says, in Ezekiel 28, 14, what are the fiery stones? Let me read the verse, and this is, of course, um, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet, talking directly to Lucifer, who is now Satan, of course. He says, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Alan, that's a metaphor that says you walked um, in the holy place. Remember when Moses was speaking to Jesus uh, in the burning bush, Jesus said to take off your sandals for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Well, the same thing applies there. In Isaiah's um, vision, um, a a charcoal, a, a white hot charcoal was taken from the altar and touched his lips because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So, it's just because you stood in the holy place. And what he's talking about here is very important. He's talking about privilege. Basically, to Lucifer, he's saying, you were the best of the best. You were the most beautiful of all. I had a plan for you. You stood in my holy presence. And then it would be almost like melancholy, God saying, what happened to you? course, that's what happens. We make the wrong choice when we willfully rebel against God. So, Alan, that's what it is. The fiery stones is just sort of a poetic metaphor for holy ground. You're walking on holy ground. Here is a question from Kent. He says, what does Luke chapter 16, 15 mean where Jesus says God knows what's in our hearts? It makes me nervous that he knows everything in my heart. Kent, this is going to officially be my favorite question of the week. Oh, I just thought of something and I'll forget. 
this is what happens as you get older. Uh, tomorrow's date day, Paula will be live in studio. So that is uh, that is what we've got going on here tomorrow. So ladies, especially for you. Um, Kent, I, I, the reason this is officially going to be my favorite question of the week is because I tell our church all the time that it ought to make them nervous that God knows what's in their heart. You know, when people are doing something they know they shouldn't be doing. Well, I understand, but God knows my heart. And I tell them that ought to terrify you, especially as you're willfully rebelling against God. So that's what it means when he says God knows what's in your hearts. He does. And when your heart is not right with God, being made nervous about it or even feeling convicted by it is a really, really good thing, Kent. So understand that God knows everything you're going to do, everything you're going to say. Before you even think of it, he knows it. He knows the motives of your heart. Even those things that we do, that we think are in obedience to him, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. God knows those motives. And we're going to be judged on all of those things. So yeah, we ought to, all of us ought to be nervous. Now, the way to deal with this, of course, is to just be with Jesus. Can't when you're not sure what's in your heart, you just say, Lord, my heart is wicked. My heart is deceitful. But what I really want more than anything else is my heart to be with you and right with you. And when you do that, everything is gone. Everything's forgiven. So the idea here, it's why Paul said that we're to examine ourselves daily, not once a week or once a month, but daily, so that we can sort of keep short accounts with Jesus. It's very important that we understand we can fool people. There are times we can even fool ourselves, but God can never be tricked because he knows everything, the end, the beginning, and everything in between. He knows it all. So, Ken, it's a good thing that you have nerves when it comes to God knowing everything in your heart. That doesn't mean that he's condemning you for the evil thoughts that come in, those that come from an outside source. Normally, those come from uh, the enemy. But but that doesn't mean it's in your heart. I love the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the church at Rome. He says, he says I find this law at work. When I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. And you have to understand that there is sin living in you. Your heart is truly in the flesh wicked. Mine is too, Kent. But Jesus, when we say, Lord, my heart belongs to you, then the power of God overcomes and the, the, the thoughts that we take captive and make them obedient, that's just the battle that we're going through day in and day out as we wait for Jesus to come for us. So, Kent, thank you for that question. I absolutely love it. It says a lot about your heart. It says to me that Jesus is the one who really owns your heart. So just be ready to fight. 340-9585, Walter asks, uh, Faith and works to me are confusing. Are we saved by faith only, or are works necessary to be saved? Walter, let me try to make this as simple as I can. We are saved by grace, through faith, period. That's what saves us. When James especially talks about, um, show me your faith without works, and he says that's, that's dead faith, what he's saying is that if you're really saved, then works will flow from that salvation. It's not that you do the works to get saved. It's that you do works to be saved. Now, let me talk about the works. It's not just always doing good things. Of course, we ought to do good things. But the kind of works that that James is talking about um, are the fruits of the Spirit that are identified by Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are good works. That's producing good fruit. It's forgiving people. It's loving people. It's reading 1 Corinthians 13 and, and, and saying, okay, does that describe the kind of love I have in my heart for people? Those are the works. It's the works of transformation. It's not that you've got to serve Jesus um, so many times a, a week in church. 
Uh, it's not that you've got to share the gospel so many times per day. It's that, that, not that kind of works. That's not what's in view here at all. So if you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, I say this all the time, if you've met him, you've, you've been changed by him. You're not the same person that you used to be. And so the works accompany the transformation. Instead of doing stuff you used to do, you want to do stuff that pleases God. That's the kind of works that we're talking about when Paul is writing to the churches in Thessalonica. He he says, I love the phrase, and such were some of you, after describing all kinds of sinful lifestyles, including idol worship. But but now, he says, and their crowning achievement is they've turned from serving idols to serving the true living God. So faith and works go together. One flows from the other. The works flow from the faith that saves. Now remember, faith is sort of the fuel. Grace is the vehicle. Grace is God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And by grace, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to deserve being saved. But because he saved you, you're so grateful that how you want to respond is to serve him. And you love him. And because you love him, you want to be with him. And when you're with him, he transforms you. The process I talk about often in this program of sanctification, those are the kind of works that James James is talking about. Now, there are churches that are really legalistic and heavy on works. That, too, misses the point from the other direction. But remember, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And then when you're really saved, everything changes. i got a young man in the church. He's uh, in his 20s. And um, really, really tough background. I mean, he was a criminal. And this guy got saved. And, he's, and, and since the day he got saved, the smiles never come off of his face. Now, we're talking, I think he just had his second year birthday in the Lord. You know, we all go through a honeymoon period and we're excited but but this guy's walk with the Lord has just grown more and more and more. And I saw him uh, last week before church on, on Friday. And uh, uh, he said, what are you teaching t- tonight? And I, I told him. And uh, he said, well, I won't be able to to listen live. I'll listen to it online. I said, oh, why won't you be able to listen to it live? He goes, well, I'm teaching the little kids t- tonight. See, that's the kind of thing that happens. He's not doing it because he has to or because he feels guilty if he doesn't. He's doing it, Walter, because he's just crazy in love with Jesus. Good question. Denny wants to know, do angels have souls and will they live forever? And then he says, where do we get the idea that angels have names? I see only Michael and Gabriel who have names. Um, Denny, let me answer that second one um, um, first, because it's easy. Uh, we only have two angels named in the Bible. Um, the other names that you see, uh, are they come from the apocryphal books, uh, which, which uh, are not scripture, so it's just sort of Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, but but uh, there are no other angels who are named in scriptures. Only Michael and Gabriel are given names. Now, do they have souls? Um, I don't know what you mean by souls. They they have spirits, and they will live forever. Uh, they will live in the presence of God, the, the, those who kept their first estate. Um, the angels who deserted God, um, falling in Satan's rebellion, um, they will live forever in torment. They will be, um, you, you can go to uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, you'll see the great white throne judgment and then the lake of fire um, where where all of those who've rejected Jesus Christ will spend eternity and the fallen angels will be there. Satan himself will be there. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be there for a thousand years before anybody else gets there. But, but uh, yeah, they will live forever. Um, so souls, I, I, I'm... I prefer the the term spirit. Angels are living spirits. We are living spirits. And once we we are created by God, uh, we will live somewhere forever. Good question. I like that. 
Oh, that's right. There, there's my producer. Thank you for that, Sam. Uh, my producer's saying, no, there's another angel named Lucifer. And, and he's right. There's three. I don't even think, I don't even want to think of him in the company with Michael and Gabriel. But yes, only three angels are named. Jeanette says, I don't think we should be ashamed of our naked bodies, so why were Adam and Eve ashamed of theirs? Um, Jeanette, they were ashamed of theirs. Now, here's the thing that's hard for us to understand. Um, Adam and Eve, of course, were created naked, but they were covered by the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. When they sinned, that Shekinah glory went away. And that's when they, they were hiding from God. Why are you hiding, Adam? Where art thou, Adam? Well, I'm over here in the corner because we discovered we were naked and were ashamed. Well, they were ashamed because of their sin. And that's when the naked body became sinful for Adam and Eve. It wasn't before, and it's nothing inherently wrong with their bodies. But they were ashamed of their nakedness before God. Now, Jeanette, think of it this way. I, I I sometimes have these dreams, and I'm sure everybody has them. The psychiatrist would have a field day with this, but but you know I think almost everybody at one point or another dreams that they're out in public somewhere and they're completely naked, and and everybody can see it, but we're out there and there's no, nothing that we can do about it, and and we understand in those dreams that that's really an embarrassing thing. Well, what Adam and Eve were embarrassed by, what they were ashamed of, is that they lost God's cover when they rebelled against him. So this isn't about whether uh, we should be ashamed of our naked bodies or not. This is without the cover of God, we should all be ashamed. You, Jeanette, and, and, and I, Pastor Ron, we should be ashamed whenever we step outside of the will of God for our lives. So they were aware of their nakedness for the very first time. And in the presence of holy God, they were ashamed, and rightly so. So this isn't a body-shaming thing at all, Jeanette. This is simply one of those things. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, Eddie wants to know, who is the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and why does he say everything is vanity? Eddie, the preacher is uh, Solomon, of course. Uh, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon late in life. Solomon is now an old man. He doesn't have much time to live. And this is often the case with old people. We look back on our lives and reflect on the quality of life that we had. And what Solomon is doing is saying, he says, look, I, I, I indulged every desire. Uh, I withheld nothing. I searched all the secret truths of the universe. I was smarter than anybody. Uh, um, um, I, there was just, I was richer than anybody. And then he comes to the conclusion that apart from God, everything is vanity. Uh, and, and that word in Hebrew means a puff of smoke, a puff of smoke that goes away. And I think it's one of those things that we really need to um, um, just just have an image of, of that smoke just going away. So that's all it means. And, and uh, I, would, I would add that anything that we do these thousands of years later that doesn't include Jesus Christ, when we stand before God, we're going to conclude that it was all meaningless, vanity, a puff of smoke. Try to grab smoke as it's raising up after after a puff of smoke. You light a match, and, and then as it gets blown out, you see just the smoke. Try to grab it. You can't grab it. It slips through the fingers and goes away. That's what Solomon is saying about his life. Ecclesiastes, Eddie's, is the reason that we know for sure that Solomon is in heaven. It's his... Um, statement of repentance. God faithfully brought him at the end of his life back to the place of his first love. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from our email box from Scott. I think I just said email box, inbox, or email inbox from Scott. What does the Lord want us to understand in Joshua 1563? 
If God told the Israelites to rid the land of anyone not Jewish, why did the Israelites not remove them from the land? Scott, that's a great question. Let me read the verse. It says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Scott, this is a perfect picture of what I call compromise of the worst kind. Um, We would ask the question this way. Um, Let me just create a scenario. Somebody is getting married. A believer is getting married to an unbeliever. And, And we would say, why would you want to do that? And the, the the answer can only be, well, I'm willing to settle for less than God's best. That's exactly what Judah was doing. God had promised them the entire land. And Judah got complacent. Judah began to live in compromise. And instead of going to war, they knew, I think, instinctively that they were outside of, of, of the fellowship of God, outside of the will of God. They simply didn't have the heart to engage the battle. And, and and the writing to this day, that's simply when Moses wrote the book, um, um, or, or Moses didn't write the book, but he, he wrote the, uh, provided the details. Um, they simply didn't have the faith to inherit God's promises, exactly the way that so many in the world that we live in, Christians, people that are going to spend forever in heaven. But they stop short of what God wants. And and God says, no, take this step of faith. And we say, no, I'm afraid. Or take this step of faith. Well, no, it doesn't make sense. And, and so too many of us, we stop way short of what God wants. You know, Scott, when I get to heaven, uh, I want to hear two things. I want Jesus to say, nice try to me. I, I, I want Jesus to know my heart was in the right place. And that I did my best. And whether or not my best was great is irrelevant. I, I, want him, I want him to say, nice try. We did this together. Um, the other thing I want him to be able to say is, you know, every time I asked you to do something, you said yes. And I've already been guilty in my 30 years walking with the Lord a couple of times of, of stopping short of really believing God when I got scared, or really believing God when there was something I just wasn't quite ready to let go of. And the one thing I learned from those horrible incidents, and for me they were horrible, I, I remember at one point going through the worst two weeks of my life, Scott, did something to take the easy way out because I was so terrified of what God was asking me to do in, in, in what seemed like impossible circumstances. And I did it. And as soon as I did it, I, I knew it was wrong, but I felt relief because I'd escaped from those consequences momentarily. But that evening, I sat down in a chair in my home and I felt like Ichabod, like the glory of God had departed it was a very important lesson I'd learned. Now, I know now God didn't leave me. But he made it feel like he did because he wanted me to know what life was going to be like if, if, I, if I did things my way instead of his way. And it was truly two weeks, Scott, where all, I, I mean, it was so dark. It was so, I, I mean, depression doesn't even begin to describe what I went through in those two weeks. Paula was so frightened that that she would have people come over. I, I would make them leave. I, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I wouldn't get up. I got up to go to bed. I got up to go to the bathroom. Because I knew that I'd stop short of what God asked me to do. And we do that all the time. That's exactly what Judah did. It's not that they could not dislodge the Jebusites, it's that they would not. And it's speculation on my part, but I really truly believe that 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 sense of knowing that we're not really pressing in is what kept them from dislodging them. They just didn't have the faith. Instead of fighting in the power of God, they were fighting in their own strength, and they decided it wasn't worth the fight. I think too many Christians, Scott, we get to that place 
where we decide it's not worth the fight, that's going to be too hard, I'm just not ready for it, I don't need it. You know, there were two and a half tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan. God had given them um, their spot in the promised land, and they decided they liked the way the land looked on the other side of the Jordan. I call it the godless side of the Jordan. And they had to go fight the battles, but they returned to the place they wanted instead of going to the place God wanted them to be. And I think that's exactly what this verse in Joshua chapter 15 is a picture of. What happens when we settle for less than God's best? Well, the phones are quiet. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program two minutes goes fast doesn't it 340-9585 here is a question from lance he wants me to please explain first thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11 as it relates to minding our own business. Let me read it, Lance, and then I'll do my best. Uh, Paul writes to them, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. And here's really the reason. It's self-explanatory, Lance. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Um, Lance, this is wonderful instruction for all of us. Um, when when Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, it, the kind of life that demonstrates the peace of Jesus. Jesus gave us his peace, his personal peace. My peace I give unto you, I don't give as the world gives. And and as believers, we can lead a quiet life. That doesn't mean we have to be quiet. It means that we can lead a quiet life. And if we mind our own business, the, the, the context there is sort of eliminates being involved in everybody else's business. Now, the reason this matters so much now in in the time that we live is because everybody's involved in everybody else's business. That's what Facebook and social media and everything is all about. I got to know what's going on in other people's lives. I got to know what they think so I can tell them what I think and 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 and, and this what a great verse this is. When I tell people in the church don't spend so much time on social media. Your opinions don't matter. Nobody needs to hear them. And certainly you can insulate yourself from hearing other people's opinions. It just inflames our passions. And, and, and people say, well, well, that's discussion. It's good. No. What we want to do is remember that our lives every day are a walking, living, breathing billboard for Jesus Christ. And if we're all up in other people's business then we're misrepresenting Jesus. He said we're to work with our hands, do honest stuff. And the reason is so that our lives may win the respect of outsiders. By that, we want to be an effective witness. We want them to know that there's a reason for them to to, to want what we have, something that they're missing, someone that they're missing. And um, that's what he means. Um, again, he's not telling us what to be quiet. He's telling us to live a quiet life, a life that would pay bills. I just started uh, talked on this in, in uh, on a Friday night study in Ephesians, just a couple three weeks ago. Uh, when we're talking about uh, slaves and masters. Um, he was saying, "Be the best slave you can, so that you can win the respect of of, of those that are around you, so that they will want your Christ." When we go to work in the morning, Lance. We need to be there on time. We need to be there with the right attitude. We need to be there ready to work. When they start paying us, we need to be there 
ready to work. Instead of heading around the coffee machine or, or um, you know, shooting the breeze with people and, and not working when you're getting paid for it, we need to be the best employees, the most committed employees. Um, no grumbling, complaining. Uh, and, and other people where you work are going to notice there's something different about you that they really need. That's what Paul means in writing to the churches in Thessalonica. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from, a called-in question from Ray. Um, Once we talk about Johnson Johnson vaccine and the church. Ray, I'm not exactly sure about the two things. I can talk about the church all day. Frankly, I'm not an expert on Johnson Johnson vaccine. I've had several calls um, since the vaccines began uh, distribution about whether I think Christians should should get vaccinated. Uh, and honestly, Ray, uh, th- those are those are individual questions that each man and woman has to resolve for themselves uh, in prayer with the Lord. Um, I'm as I sit here today, I'm unlikely to be vaccinated. Um, I've I've had COVID. Um, it doesn't appear that that I can be reinfected. Um, I've been around people with COVID. We've ministered to people with COVID. Uh, it doesn't appear that I can be reinfected. Uh, there are no reported instances of reinfection. If there were, uh, that would be front page news. They would use it to try to scare people to death. You had it, but you can get it again. And here's all the people who have been reinfected. It just hasn't. You know, they talk about, well, we don't know if you can. And I understand that. But but it just seems like they're trying to scare us so much. So, so I, I would say, personally, I'm unlikely to be vaccinated um, because I don't think it's necessary. I'm one of those guys that, Never got vaccinated with a flu shot or, or anything else. I just um, praise the Lord. I'm, I'm pretty healthy and and haven't had the issues. Um, but 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 see, that's not good for me. We've got people here who are nurses. We got people here who have have pre-existing conditions, and 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 we encourage them to go get vaccinated. So it's a it's a really really good thing. Um, but again, it's a, an individual choice, and I don't have the right. Um, to to um, opinionate about what other people should do. Um, I'm going to do what, what I'm called to do. And if God says he wants me to get vaccinated, I'm with him every day. I spend time in prayer every day. Um, he, he'll let me know. And if he says to do it, believe me, I will be standing in line that day to do it. Um, if you are talking about the recent news of of uh, the, the the Catholic reaction to fetal tissues being used in the vaccine, um, um, Ray, I'm, the Catholic Church has made a big issue of that. Um, I don't. I think they've already used the fetal tissues. Um, it, it, whether or not somebody gets vaccinated, um, I don't think says anything at all about their their stance on abortion. Um, so, so I, again, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what you're what you're speaking about. But um, I've told our church here at Calvary Chapel, um, more power to them. I, the best thing about the vaccines, the very best thing about the vaccine, is the relief I see on people's faces after they've completed their vaccine regimen. I think, and I could be wrong here, Ray, but I think the Johnson Johnson is just one shot, not the two shots. And if that's the case, um, I'm always for one shot instead of two. But uh, I've seen so many people, it's like they're free, they're out of jail. And, 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 and they're free to resume life again. We never stopped living life, but, but so many did. Rightly so in this last year. And um, so, again, I don't know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the, the relationship between the two, but that's um, pretty much the best I can offer. Thank you very much, Ray, for the question. 
Here is a question from, uh, oh, no name on this one. Here she says, Psalm 104, 100, verse 4, says to enter his gates with thanksgiving. How do we practically do that when things are really, really hard? You know, um, whoever you are, uh, when things are hard, it's when we need to be the most grateful. You know, I say to people all the time that when, when they're really going through something difficult, when they're under attack, um, um, when it seems like the world is about to fall in on them, those are the times. When they're grieving, I mean, serious grief, that's when they have to press in to Jesus more closely than ever before. I remind them of that because that's when we least want to do that. We're so focused on what we're going through. We focus on our pain or our grief. And the enemy is going to be right there. One of his schemes, I'm going to talk about the the schemes of the devil in our second study in Spiritual Warfare in Ephesians chapter 6 on Friday night. But one of his schemes is the minute he gets our focus off Jesus, he's going to start pounding us. And that's when we need to be grateful. So think about what God has done for you. He died for you to redeem you, to purchase you out of your sin. The Bible says, John chapter 3, Jesus speaking, that we're condemned already. When we're born, we're born condemned. And yet Jesus rescued you. And he did it at great personal expense. His father sent his son when he knew the grief that he was going to experience. When the whole earth turned dark, that's more than just a literal darkness. It is literal, by the way. When Jesus cried to give up his spirit. But it means that his heart was dark, his soul was dark. Jesus became sin. We can be grateful for that. We can be grateful for all of the things that he's done for us, the things that he's given for us. Paul and I, we've been going through a a time where we're just so grateful to God. And, you know, things are hard. Uh, We're going through, we go through difficult things like everybody else does. In, in, In our lives, we see so much pain. And yet there's so much that we have to be grateful for. There's pain and there's joy. I'm I'm grateful for the joy. I'm grateful that God's with me in the pain. Paul says, with thanksgiving we can make our requests known to God. What that means is that if we're not grateful, our prayers aren't going to be heard. So it's when times are the hardest that gratitude is the most important. It's something that we have to practice every day. We have to be intentional about that. Here is a question from Sylvia. Well, let me do this first. From We've got a caller holding. Thank you. Steve from Cedar Park on line one. Steve, thanks for breaking up the monotony. You're on the air. <laughs> hey, thanks, Pastor. Thanks for taking my call. And, uh-huh. uh, as my question, I just wanted to thank you for the... Uh, opportunity to look at your website and listen to your, or read your uh, teaching notes and listen to your um, messages online. They, they've been a true blessing over the years. Thank um, you, Steve. Oh, you're welcome. My question is, uh, reading in John, and I, and I think uh, the other Gospels, but when the Pharisees and scribes are uh, talking to the Baptist, John the Baptist, they ask, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? And, and I see that in a couple places, the prophet. Um, with the Jews looking not only for a Messiah or a specific prophet? Yeah, they were looking, this is Deuteronomy chapter 18. They were looking for that prophet. It was, it was, it was the one that they knew. Uh, uh, more than more than a prophet, a prophet like Jesus. But it comes from Deuteronomy chapter eighteen. I don't have the exact verse uh, right here, Steve, but um, you'll you'll be able to find it easily in Deuteronomy eighteen. That is the prophet to come. That's the one that they were waiting for. And when he says, "Are you that prophet?" Remember when when John began preaching, 
in the in the wilderness out in, in, in the Jordan, um, the whole countryside came to him because God had been silent for 400 years. So immediately the religious establishment in particular wanted to know, are you that prophet? Or are you Elijah? They knew Elijah must come before before um, uh, the Messiah is revealed. So what they're really asking, John, are you the one? And he's saying, no, I'm not the one. But but it's the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18, the more than a prophet type, the one that they were waiting for, for the redemption of Israel. Does that make help? Yeah, oh, I got you it. So much. Yeah, uh, Steve, he, he, my producer yeah. just dug it up for me. It's chapter 18, verses 15 and through 18. All right, I'll go there today. Thank you, Steve. Thank God you. bless. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Jimmy online too. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, sir. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. Hi. Um, I was going to ask you. Uh, my spring broke. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a joke. Spring break. Spring broke. Anyway, um, I was going to tell you. Um, I was going to ask you, hey, if a church, um, if a church, uh, does it say the salvation of prayer after each service, is that okay? I, mean, I know you do it all the time, but uh, to ask people, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, here's an opportunity for you to do so. And then you, you say a prayer and then, you know, but... Um, I know some churches don't do that. Yeah. Or the church I went to before, and they don't do that. So. Yeah, yeah Jimmy, it's 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 a hard thing. Um, um, I, I want to do this without sounding too judgmental, but the reason that most churches who do not give an invitation don't do it, uh, there there's a reformed group that that doctrinally. What they believe now they're wrong, but what they believe is that that uh, giving an invitation uh, doesn't make any difference, uh, and, and it's sort of unbiblical because God chooses who's going to be saved, and we don't know who they are. So, uh, if you think that man doesn't have a choice, then doctrinally you're not going to give an invitation. So, accepting them for a moment, at least they have a doctrinal reason for doing it. Remember, I said they're wrong, but at least they're consistent with what they believe. The reason most churches, other churches, don't give an invitation is because um, it makes people uncomfortable. Um, it's, it's, it's the most uncomfortable time in any church service. And I always ask for a, a, a public response, um, and they say that even makes it worse. But the idea is, well, you want people to be comfortable. You want them to come back. And if you, if you make them uncomfortable, then you're going to chase them away. And, and I, I can, for the life of me, Jimmy, I cannot understand um, how anybody, any, any pastor is going to explain that to Jesus on the day that he stands before the Lord and the work um, that he's done and the heart behind that work is unveiled. I, I can imagine Jesus looking at people and saying, were you ashamed of me? And we're saying, well, we, we didn't want people to be uncomfortable, but we know that that's going to be an excuse. So um, I have been convicted from the very beginning. Before I ever came to Texas, I was teaching some Bible studies. And, and the Lord spoke to my heart very clearly. And he said, every time you have the opportunity, um, got a microphone in your hand, or you've got a, you've got a position in front of people, you invite them to become my children. And that's exactly what I've done. So I don't think... Um, if I've ever forgotten it, um, there were special circumstances, but but um, I do that at funerals, I do that at weddings, I do it in church, and I think it's a very important part of the life of a church. You know, before COVID, Jimmy, um, we, we, we always had tons of new people coming. And in part, one of the reasons was, one of the large reasons was, uh, the people at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio knew that the people they'd been sharing with or the people they'd been praying for, if they could get them to come to church, they knew that I was going to give an invitation and the people would have an opportunity to make that choice. 
And I like that. I, I, I always want our people to know that when they bring somebody to church, they're going to be given the opportunity to ask Jesus Christ into their heart. So, Jimmy, that's the only reason. And and I, I think it's really sad when people don't do it because they don't want people to be uncomfortable. Every church growth expert or church marketing expert will tell you one of the first two rules. Well, first rule, as silly as it sounds, is have plenty of parking. Make it convenient again. Second, don't make them uncomfortable with invitations or altar calls. And I think that's criminal, spiritually criminal. So... I hope so, Jimmy. Jimmy, no more jokes when you call. You, Sam says you don't need to audition for his job. He already has one. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless you. Bye-bye. 340-9585. Here's a question from Sylvia that just came in on our mobile app. Um, what is your opinion about Beth Moore's split with the SBC? Should I... Or women, for that matter, follow her or stay with the SBC? Sylvia, you're asking me a loaded question because I'm not an SBC fan at all. Um, um, There are SBC pastors that I dearly and deeply love. Um, Jack Graham, um, uh, my favorite probably ever, is, is Charles Stanley. Um, th- th- there are wonderful men uh, in the the, the South, Southern Baptist Convention. That's what SBC stands for. Um, I'm not a fan for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the 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 SBC has been taken over by um, what they, they describe themselves as neo Calvinists or the new Calvinists, um, and and I think Calvinism will destroy. Um, the SBC long before anything else will. And um, the the political maneuvering within the SBC is toxic. It's absolutely toxic. Um, regarding Beth Moore, um, she is. Um, she, she just announced her split with the SBC. She said they they have left her. She's. She says I, I've been SBC my whole life. I'm sad because I still believe what the, the Southern Baptist Convention believes in terms of doctrinal statements. Um, but she's been sort of a, a lightning rod in the SBC because she's so popular. Now I'm not a Beth Moore fan. I don't like her preaching at all. Um, I think I think at times it borders on being foolish. Um, doctrinally, um, I think she's got some issues. My my problems with Beth Moore have nothing whatsoever with her being to do with her being a woman. Um, but because she has such a big following, I think she's got over a million Twitter followers. Um, the, the the men in the SBC and decided she's a threat to their uh, complementarian stance. I don't agree with that. Beth Moore has been a complementarian her whole life. I personally don't think there's anything wrong. If 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 uh, if if I liked Beth Moore, I wouldn't and her preaching. I wouldn't think there's anything wrong with having her speak to my church. I wouldn't do it on a Sunday, but but on another time, uh, she's not trying to be a pastor. Um, and yet they sort of circled the wagons. What really, though, caused this division was um, her criticisms of former President Trump um, as a sexual abuse survivor herself. She was mortified when she read the transcripts of what President Trump and Billy somebody, I can't remember his name, um, what he said uh, on the on the, the the show that he had, and it was caught on a hot mic. Um, and 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 the way the Southern Baptist Convention, the men, the churches, um, deeply politicized their focus, and the, and 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 Donald Trump became, uh, I think, more of a savior to a lot of people in in Christianity, more so than Jesus. And it pains me to say that. But we were supporting a man who was a serial adulterer. We weren't talking about his character flaws. Remember, 
The SBC was the loudest when it came to Bill Clinton's character flaws. But when it was Donald Trump, hands off. And so they just dropped Beth Moore like a hot potato. Then when all of the um, abuse allegations came to light within some huge churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, and 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 the convention really did nothing about it. She felt like women were being abandoned. And if I were a woman who loved Jesus, um, and I was concerned about the safety of women and the treatment of women in a church, uh, I would not stay with the SBC. So for for you have to make that choice, Sylvia, prayerfully. Um, but but I just think there's so much wrong at the core with the SBC. Doctrine is not one of them, by the way, except for the, the neo-Calvinist. Um, I just think um, they've made Beth Moore a boogie woman, and, um, and it's tragic. I think they're going to um, be harmed a great deal um, with her leaving. That, that's how influential she is with women. So, Sylvia, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I've read quite a bit about uh, what she's going through, but for the SBC not to take seriously the the claims of of, uh, abuse inside the church um, is is a horrible, horrible reflection on Jesus Christ. So, Sylvia, thanks very, very much. I appreciate you tuning into the program. Well, you can hear the music tomorrow. Paula will be live in the studio on the Date Day edition of the program. We look forward to your calls and your questions and the conversation with her. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Tonight at 7 o'clock, I'll be teaching the second half of Genesis chapter 37 as we continue laying the foundation for Joseph. God bless you, Lord willing. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.